sadly about eight years ago, my dad took his own life and that really kind of propelled me into this space. I was already really interested in it. I was already on the road, but it's now the fire in my belly that that keeps me going because I, I just don't want to, to see that again. And that's why I work at Movember. That's why I work as a psychologist because on a day-to-day basis, I see so many men who are just their own worst enemy. That's Dr. Zach Seidler. He's a psychologist, a leading mental health expert, and the director of mental health training at Movember. Zach's dedicated his career to better understanding men's mental health and building programs to reshape how clinicians approach working with men in distress. 65% of guys who die by suicide have sought help in the weeks or months prior. They are within our reach. Zach and Movember's goal is to reduce the male suicide rate by 25% by 2030. How we create a world with less suicide is highly complex and it's going to take research, preventative health strategies, crisis support, and the everyday person all working together to get us there. We need an overhaul. We need a, a revolution, not an evolution here. November is, of course, Movember, that special time of year when the majestic mows are flowing. So whether you're growing one yourself or donating to a great cause, find a way to get involved and do it for the boys. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organisation promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Zach, why does men's mental health mean so much to you? Mm. Uh, There's both personal and professional answers to that. Uh, I think the more you get into this, the more it pulls you in. I was in high school, was was realizing um, that lots of my mates were were struggling um, and were not expressing what was happening. And I was the guy who was in drama and music and, um, you know, only really had had female friends who I could talk to. And there was a lot of uh, emotional baggage that I was able to to share with them in some ways. And I witnessed lots of other guys not being able to do that. Meanwhile, at, at home, um, my dad was going through, you know, an ongoing battle with depression. I've got two older brothers as well. And just watching how all of us walked around on eggshells um, at home and weren't necessarily able to express what was happening or question him. And it was really awkward and uncomfortable throughout that whole period. Was that Um, your dad lashing out because he didn't know how to interpret his own emotions? Yeah, I think that there was, there was definitely a, a part of him that meant that it was shameful to express, you know, what he believed to be feelings of weakness. Whereas I've come to terms with the fact that it's obviously much more useful to let it out um, early on rather than let it build up to crisis. And sadly, about eight years ago, my dad took his own life and that really kind of propelled me into this space. I was already really interested in it. I was already on the road, but it's now the fire in my belly that that keeps me going because I, I just don't want to, to see that again. And that's why I work at Movember. That's why I work as a psychologist because 
on a day-to-day basis, I see so many men who are just their own worst enemy. Um, and I don't think that they realize uh, that there are so many points where they can do something differently. And that's kind of um, what I've taken on as my my role. What what inspires me is is to be able to teach these guys that there's a different way. There's a different route. There are heaps of different paths. And just because they're not illuminated to you now, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. That's powerful, mate. And I'm sorry for your loss. What do you think on reflection uh, were the biggest barriers for your dad? Um, he So he sought help. And, and that's something that is uh, really important. And that's kind of what I've, what I've built my career on is that lots of guys are reaching out, are in touch with services and are not getting what they need. So this idea that this stuff happens out of the blue, I call bullshit on that. It is really, really common that guys are talking to their GP, are potentially seeing a psychologist, you know, are rocking up at ED and um, are just not being seen, spoken to and cared for in a way that is actually useful to them. So dad, you know, he was in touch with the system for an ongoing period, but um, he never felt safe. Um, to share what was going on. Uh, he never felt like uh, anyone necessarily understood, uh, you know, the idea that he wanted to be a provider and protector for his family and that he deemed it to be, um, you know, weak to um, have to deal with his own issues. He didn't want to burden anybody else. And so what yeah. I now do is try to reframe this whole thing for dads, grandpas, whoever it may be that I see, which is to say that obviously if you can't get your own shit together, how do you think you're going to provide and protect? And, you know, when it comes down to it, um, what happened to my dad? He he's not around to you know provide or, or protect anymore, and so that's what the illness does in many ways. It it distorts your idea of uh, who you are and what you're capable of and how to look after people. And and many people believe that them not being here is the easiest way for them to care for people. Um, but what we try to do now is really make clear to them that getting on early to deal with this stuff to talk it through is you know, helping yourself is helping others. And and that's not a narrative that has been sold enough previously, I don't think, mm-hmm. because the whole uh, mental health narrative has been like, overcome it and everything will be sweet. But yep. in fact, it's an ongoing battle. Absolutely. And I think that's the classic stereotype, which has a bit of irony to it, I suppose, where men have been classically conditioned to think that to be that strong provider that we're meant to be, then we just need to bottle it all and to even show... Uh, and any kind of inkling that we're actually experiencing things that anyone would experience would be to go against our fundamental role to be that provider. But the irony of that being that by not allowing yourself to be a full person and bring other people into the picture, you're actually nowhere near as effective a man as you could be if you actually face some of those problems and realize you could bring other people into it. And I think that's such an important thing now for, because I, I, I believe that most men want to be as effective as possible. They want to be that provider. They want to be that strong friend. They want to be a man that they're proud of to look in, at in the mirror. And part of that is saying, I can't do this all on my own. I'm going to have times where it's really hard. And that's that's absolutely fine. In fact, it's necessary. And it will ultimately make me stronger if I can actually face that and, and be straight up about it. There's a lot of sort of, I think, reconditioning of the narrative to get that point across and then, and then maintain it. Yeah, it's, it's a rebranding of sorts. Uh, you know, the idea that masculinity had to be one thing for every man and it was this unassailable standard, you know, that's hard won and easily lost um, is 
fundamentally flawed and has led to the to the harm of so many men and their families over time. Um, what we need to get to is this point where we realize that positive masculinity means flexible masculinity, which means there is a time and a place for things like stoicism and independence and uh, you know autonomy and strength and all of those things. But you cannot apply them rigidly yes. because if you do, um, you are missing the cues. You're not reading the room. You're not responding to the situation that's in front of you. You're walking around blindly in the dark with a, a model box on your head yeah. <laughs> um, that is that is not fitting into the room. And so what we really want is for guys to go, is this helpful for me right now? Is this what I need? Is this how this should actually work? Or is this just my pride, you know? Or is this just a, an idea that was fed to me mm. um, that's complete crap? Because when you get guys in and they start to realise uh, that there is self-betterment ahead, that there is something that can be offered to them that is only going to move them in the right direction towards um, realising their own strengths, their, their capabilities, um, then we get to an understanding of what true masculinity is, which is to be, uh, you know, a fully self-actualized individual that understands his strengths and weaknesses, that knows what triggers his vulnerabilities and knows how to respond to them. That's the thing as well. You shouldn't just know your triggers. What the whole mental health system is hopefully going to be able to provide men is an understanding of what to do in those tough times and look after um, the other people in your life as well. And you can't fit men on such a broad spectrum into a rigid box of, okay, so this is a man or, or this isn't, when we're so different, we're so varied. Yeah, we have a lot of things in common and there's a lot of traits about being a man that just come along with the biology, which we shouldn't be ashamed of, which we need to embrace mm -hmm. and which need to remain part of who we are. But then there's so many other things as well. And men who might be completely different from each other shouldn't feel like, oh, well, I'm not that classic stereotype of what a man is. So therefore, do I have to change? And I think the answer is no. It's more so about trying to give people an understanding of a broader definition of what it is to be a man or just a, a good person or a useful member of society and, and not give people this sense that you have to drill it down to these four or five things of what you need to be and everything else is irrelevant or you should be embarrassed about it. Who sold us this idea? Because it sucks. Like, no, no one actually. Well, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it, it started during the world wars straight up. It was like, all right, there were teenagers. They were working out what's going on. Um, they had all of these options ahead of them uh, when it came to, to being a man. And then suddenly they're cast into, um, you know, a horrific, traumatic um, world war. And so uh, they were stripped of, of their childhoods in many ways. And they were thrown into this idea of, this is what you need to do in order to survive. The problem is, is that that circumstance is over. Yeah. Thankfully for many countries. Uh, and so the issue that we are now faced with is an old model fit in a new context. And that's why we're getting these teething expressions coming out where you're seeing this age old stereotype of masculinity smashing up against what is a 21st century mentality where women want power, you know, reliably and consistently they want to be able to sit at the at the table they want to um you know not be sexually assaulted you know all of these ideas that previously women didn't have a voice for instance men you know the the old model could just come in and do whatever it wanted to do now there is an understanding that this thing needs to broaden out it needs to be context specific and also most importantly is the idea that you're fit white heterosexual man 
is not all there is. It's it's not the dominant way anymore. If anything, you know, the multiculturalism within Australia and the Western world now suggests that we need to broaden this stuff out and start to understand that there are benefits all over the shop and we should actually be piecing together totally different diverse masculinities that fit for each different context. What is it about the ways in which our world has changed that's made it harder for men? I think it's kind of always been hard. Um, I think we're just noticing it now. There was, because of, of uh, you know, certain ideas around power and the fact that men led governments and continue to, but largely would do, would do so on their own. Um, they would lead corporations. There would be this guise of, of power and privilege. Um, but underneath it uh, was a real shallow, um, vapid sense of self. And what's happened, I think, is that these men who were getting away with looking like they had everything, um, it's now kind of catching up. And so their power and their privilege uh, is being questioned and therefore what's underneath it uh, is empty. And so they're tumbling, uh, literally tumbling. And the Harvey Weinsteins of the world who get questioned, uh, they start to to find out that their very core has been rotten away. And so um, that's obviously a very extreme example, but we've got a lot of guys who have he- had their head in the sand um, because things you know, have seemed to be working out for them and and purpose and meaning now for a young generation of men is is harder to come by mm. um, because there's a long discussion around the fact that men should not be like this, men should not do this, men should be afraid of this, and there's no discussion of what men should, should do. do. There's yeah. no mantra or doctrine about how men should uh, exist within the world. Mm. If we can create that for them, then we can start to uh, match their opportunities with their sense of purpose and meaning and then we will have fully functioning useful members of society but they cannot continue to just go on with the status quo uh, which is closing your eyes and hoping for the best those times are over and i'm hoping that there is a, a reckoning of sorts ahead just like there was for for women in the 60s and 70s where they go this isn't working for us so many men are coming out now and going I've lost too many mates. I've lost a father. I've lost a brother to to something that could have been avoided. They have suffered unnecessarily and we want them to live happier, healthier, longer lives. And the only way to do that is to do some of the heavy lifting early, is to talk to our boys about what they can and should be, um, you know, to have aspirations and beliefs. uh, Because what we're seeing now across the spectrum, whether you look at health, education, employment, men are falling away. They are just not performing in the ways that they did previously. These new generations, um, the dropout from school, you know, the amount of women who are in universities in comparison to men, and then you look at graduate level jobs, for instance, and and women are just running away with it. Um, and we love to see women succeeding, but I'm sure that any woman would say, you don't want that at the, the cost of men because everyone is dealing with the emotional labor of men who are who are struggling and who are not able to reach their potential and we want to create an environment and a culture and a society that props everyone up and that looks after everyone equally at the moment men are not looking out for themselves yes very well said and of course we don't want to make it a 
men versus women issue anyway because we're all people who need need each other and need to exist in society together at the end of the day but very much so the narrative has shifted over time from used to be all the things that men can do and all the things women clearly can't do and then with the women's rights movement for decades of more and more hey look at all these things women can now do which is a wonderful thing that needed to happen but within that more of the discussion around all the things that men and boys shouldn't do and then that has just far outweighed the positive stuff and the focus on perhaps what we should be encouraging young men to do and it's been very much men are bad because we do this look at all these examples of men behaving like this domestic abuse mm. all these things are, are true to an extent but for young minds and young boys especially growing up and they're having this heaved on them being demonized in a way or being taught to think that there's something wrong with the typical elements of being a man with mm. no clear path of this is where you should go this is your path forward if you want to be an effective successful happy man who's a full person and so i think there's just a lot of lost in the quagmire of not exactly sure where we fit in at this time and place and yeah i'm interested in, in your thoughts on so how do we make the next generation more mental health literate and not just them because it needs to be the rest of society around that as well to actually demand that and, and see that as valuable because we've never had generations of men who were raised with mental health being a priority or even really on the topic list. So what do we do to change that and how much of an impact is that going to make on the, on the suicide rates overall and on how effective we are as a society? Beautifully said. And you got quagmire in as well, which yeah. is <laughs> giggity. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what are we going to do? Uh, what we need to do is we need to sell better. Women have been sold models of femininity. They've been sold empowerment. Um, and men have been sold for the past, you know, three to five years, um, fear and shame. And uh, what needs to now replace that? And I, and I think that something that's really important is it's the same as the climate change movement. The pendulum will swing much further than it needs to go in yep. order for there to be action um, underpinning it. Things always move a bit too far to mm. in, in one direction. Definitely. And um, that's that's what I always make really clear when I'm talking to groups of young guys is that we're not going to stay out here. This is just a, a really important moment where we start to see how insidious this stuff is, how common it is, whether it be uh, mental illness, whether it be domestic violence or otherwise, we need to witness and have a, have a needs analysis of sorts of how bad this stuff is on the ground in order to go, all right, shit, we need to do things differently. So I think that that's kind of what the moment is. There's also just a sense of everyone being fed up, which I also understand. But that aside, that will not work in the long term. Um, you distance, you shame, and you isolate um, the group, the exact group of men that you need to connect with, and that by, just that um, just makes people angry, and that just it, it just intensifies those feelings, which leads to more of those negative behaviours, and then that feeds it as a cycle. Because you tell me I am something, and I'll show you I am. Yeah, welcome to the death threats that I get. You know, when I write an article where these guys go, "How dare you cast me as this guy? I'll fucking kill you!" And it's like, can you not? And this is the thing. I hope that we can get to a generation of guys that does not feel victimized when we question them. That's really what it comes down to, because that's what self-regulation is. That's what emotional literacy is, is going, all right, they're pointing to an issue. They're not attacking me personally. Yeah. And that's something that, that uh, you know, points to a 
you know, a thin skin in many ways, whereby men have not been questioned. On well, that just goes to show you your foundation isn't solid at all. Like you're talking about where people underneath, they're, they're hollow or they don't have whatever that self-assurity is within them for whatever reason. And that leads to outbursts like that. And that's part of what leads to domestic abuse or sexual assault. These are all elements of it. You're mm -hmm. not going to attack someone if you feel secure and within yourself when you have self-esteem and you feel like you have options and a, and a path forward, you're going to do it probably unconsciously if you feel like you don't. Exactly. There's a, there's a deep fragility that I see and, and we need to speak to that fragility in a way that doesn't um, further crack them, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've done quite a few talks on the idea of fragile masculinity and everyone has gone... Um, don't call it fragile masculinity. You know, it's it's horrible. And I said again, it's it's this is a rebranding situation. Fragility is not a problem. Beautiful things are fragile. Mm. You know, it's 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 the way that we perceive of it. The idea that we are walking around on eggshells because men are just going to crack at any point in time, rather than holding them and wrapping them up and looking after them. You know, that's the flip side of fragility: is that we care for them mm. rather than being afraid of them. And I think that that's what we've lost in the narrative, which is that um, if we find a way to listen to these voices, and this is where men are essential in helping men, um, because I, I think that it's very difficult for women to, to step forward and take on this role uh, in an ongoing nature. It's really taxing. It's very difficult. And men have not done enough, I don't think, um, in you know holding that emotional space for, for many other guys. And so we want to get to the point when you talk about mental health literacy, where we have constant waves of role models you know at each age bracket who are looking out for these guys and talking about their experiences not in a way where i got over this thing and now look at me i'm an you know i play for the eels and i'm awesome you know yeah. we want to get to the point where we go i am battling but i am dealing with it i am facing up to what is happening it happens and it changes on a day-to-day -day basis but i'm aware of it i am responding to it, and I'm willing to do the work. And we walk through what the process is. Too often, it's just like hindsight. It's just like, when I look back, I was stupid and young and blah, blah, blah. Then I did something in the middle, and now I'm here. Yeah, now it's I'm like, fixed. can we open that up? Of course, we have the, the typical hero's journey story where it starts off with... Uh, the beginning and then you go through your struggle and then we've always been taught uh, but then you win and then you get the hot chick and ride off into the sunset and that's all good after that point but of course I'm waiting for that I'm waiting. <laughs> still waiting for that but of course that's not how it goes and there's no getting cured of mental illness and then that's not something that we should then say oh well I'm a broken person forever and in fact something that comes out of these podcasts so frequently is men who have struggled with something, continue to struggle with something, but they've got it to a point where it's manageable. They've found enough of a reason to continue living their life. They've had times in their life where they felt like it was so dark that they were never going to come back from it, but they did. They stayed alive and now they're still grappling with whatever it is, but that's okay because life is worth living and there's ways of managing it that make that all so much more worthwhile than they would have ever imagined. And so mm. trying to get that point across to people where it's like, okay, so if you have been painted with a particular brush or you have been diagnosed with a certain condition or whatever it is, it doesn't mean that now you can't ever be happy or fulfilled or that you have to be fit in a certain box. Like we said before, you still have all these options open to you and it's going to be hard, but you're not going to do it alone and you can live this life that you 
want to have and you don't have to give up on it. That's exactly right. And it's the idea that I'm, I'm not here particularly as a clinician or a friend to fix you. I'm here to help you live with whatever is going on and to help you flourish with it. The amount of guys I know who have depression or anxiety who are just crushing it, you know, day to day because they are aware of their triggers. They face up to them. They do the work. You know, they exercise, they eat accordingly, and they are aware of what is needed in order for them to perform at their optimal level. The vast majority of them will tell you that they are very, very grateful in many ways that they went through the journey that they did because it's the making of men. Yeah. That's what it comes down to is that facing up to those difficult moments, that is when you understand who you truly are and what you can be is is facing up to the darkness and walking into it in yeah many ways. and when and when mm-hmm. when that fragility is thrust in front of your face especially if it's your own and you realize that life is serious and i am vulnerable and i am fragile whether i want to admit that or not we're not invincible like we think we are at some point in our lives and whether something happens to our friends or our family that makes us see that or we experience something ourselves or both uh realizing that yeah we're not invincible. We are fragile, and above all else, I really want to. I really want to be here. As hard as that is, I want to find a way to be here. I want to find a way to be a positive light in other people's lives. And oh my God, I, I can't believe I experienced such a level of darkness. I would really want to help others avoid feeling that way. And there's something deeply human about that because that's the huge part of that is about community building, and then wanting to make something that you've experienced, which becomes a fire or a feeling that's buried deep within your your chest probably forever and wanting to use that and somehow turn it into a positive to help others because I think a lot of meaning can be derived from that in helping others move forward with something. And it also selfishly, it just helps us deal with our own burdens and, and process our own feelings, which we continue to. Like obviously losing your father nearly a decade ago, me losing a friend a couple of years ago now, in terms of the grief, it's not intense as it was when it happened, but you still carry it with you, you still overcome occasionally, however often it might be where something will trigger you, you'll think of uh, that person, there'll be a, a song or someone will say something and you have a moment. And for me, I'm like, I can't believe that that person's still gone. Like it still shocks me that life's so unfair and harsh in so many ways where you make one decision and then that's it. And then there's no coming back from that. But understanding mm. that in viscerally so can also be empowering, I think. I look forward to a day where, and I wrote about this last week, the idea that, um, you know, the likes of Movember and all uh, men's health movements really um, are fueled on grief in many ways. They are fueled on pain and suffering, yeah. uh, whether it be, you know, having lost somebody or whether it be your own difficulties that you've now managed to overcome. I look forward to a day where men are able to proactively jump on board without necessarily having even experienced any of this stuff. You know, um, I see so many women doing that, women who've never come into contact with breast cancer, for instance. It's a huge movement where uh you know, a vast number of women will will come on board just out of of, of interest and out of passion and whatever it may be. Mm. I don't want. It's the same way that we view male help seeking, which is that wait until crisis yeah. before doing something. Yeah. No longer yeah. can that hold. We need to get proactive rather than reactive. You know, when crisis hits, that is the hardest time for me to do anything. Whether you're a friend or you're a patient, it doesn't matter. You know, getting you out of bed. Uh, you know, getting you seeing a purpose for life is a much harder starting point than is, oh, I've got these, you know, 
various thoughts of, of anxiety that are coming and going when I'm in, when I'm at work, for instance, what can I do about it? You know, it starts there. It always starts with something. My relationship is really difficult. We can handle those. Um, it's the, it's the suppressing and, and bottling up of those things that lets them explode over time and um, facing up to them and realizing that there is a way forward that is true strength. Um, that's that's what I'm hoping we we get towards. And that's really reconditioning the whole way that society views it, both men and women. And I think what you say about, okay, so there's plenty of movements or groups or pages now where we see women who haven't necessarily been through something tragic that are still pushing women's rights or, or pride in themselves or whatever it might be. And I think that's just because like we uh, mentioned earlier, fundamentally for women, there's a lot of be proud to be a woman. You know, you're yeah. amazing. You're beautiful. You have such strength. Show it to the world. And still, there'd be certainly um, it'd be a bit tentative to do that as a man. Where if the whole basis of it was, I'm, I'm proud to be a man. Uh, not even necessarily mental health, but you know, being a man is is beautiful. And this is my version of that. And here you go you know, there could be some, some pushback to that or people would think that or they think that would be gay or it would be uh, narcissistic of me or, or I'd be judged for that. Uh, whereas I think the women have done a great job at being a lot more generally accepting of all sorts of different types of women and we need to get there for men too. Definitely. What, what we're doing at the moment is, is all this whole movement is avoid risk. Guys, bad things are going to happen and we need to find a way to avoid those one way or another, whether it be you know, violence, whether it be suicide, whether it be you know, mental health difficulties more broadly. That's what the whole narrative is. I want to get to the point where we go, men are beautiful, men have capacity, men can strive for greatness naturally in and of themselves. So let's have a movement that gives us a pathway towards talking about those things without this element of shit is going to hit the fan. And without thinking that in some way that means that we have to put women down to get there because we can both be there at the same time. That's something that human civilization has never experienced, but I think it's possible when it's not like, well, only women or men can dominate and only one of us can be happy at a time. And so that's just, that's how we have to go about it. So how has the reality of the mental health picture in Australia developed and shifted in the almost decade that you've been focusing on this? Well, the very fact that we're here, it points to how much things have changed. You know, I, I did four community radio interviews this morning about uh, male suicide. You go back even three, four years, and that was a long shot. So uh, we've come a huge way when it, when, when it just comes to awareness, full mm. stop, um, which is a huge coup, and everyone should be really proud of that. I just think that we have now reached the threshold where enough is enough when it comes to awareness mm. and it's now time for action. And I think that's where we're at now, which is that we're looking at systems. We're realising that uh, especially what COVID threw up was the idea that uh, mental health is now front and centre uh, for families, you know, for kids, for uh, workplaces, for schools. Everyone is so aware of, of mental health. That which is a good thing. It, um, Awesome. It's at it's at the dinner table. Never was before. Um, nonetheless, you are now funneling people into a system that are not that is not prepared for yeah. them. Yeah, it is uh, a, a system that is archaic. It is a system that was built, you know, haphazardly um, over a couple of decades in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and is now responding to a wave of distress uh, that they've never seen before. So we've we have wait lists 
out of control. We have clinicians, especially when it comes to young guys who have never seen young guys before because they never came in and now they are coming um, and they're they're coming in droves and it's incredible. Um, But we need to make sure, and this is my whole shtick now, which is that if we are going to put in all of the effort to get these populations, these at-risk populations into seek help, are we prepared to deal with them? Mm. Do we have the the ability to actually respond to them with something that they want and that they need? And if we don't, um, we need to rehaul the whole system. And if 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 many of them are having a bad experience when they have had the courage to go in and take that step and make that happen, then they're probably not going to come back. I can assure you that they're not. That's what my research says over and over. There's this idea um, that men should adapt to the system. And I was like, when was the last time you went to a physio? And he said, I can't deal with your knee. That's not a knee that I've seen before. So you're going to have to go elsewhere. It doesn't happen. The, the physio will adapt to the knee in front of him. Just like any mental health clinician should go, all right, you're a young guy. I need to shift stuff up here. I cannot give you my cookie cutter therapy because it's not going to work because you just do not give a shit when it comes to some of this stuff. I need to relate to you in a totally different way. Yeah. What we know is that the dropout rate is around 40 to 45% for guys who have come into therapy. So we're looking at nearly half of them prematurely leaving um, after they've put in all of the time effort. We've got every charity under the sun pumping money into this stuff. The government's pumping money in. They come in, they're within our reach, and then they're gone. And something you know, that keeps me up at night is this statistic. As I said, my dad sought help. I know hundreds and thousands of guys who have taken their own lives, but but have sought help. And we know that like 65% of guys who die by suicide have sought help in the weeks or months prior. They are within our reach. They are there, they are ready. And if you do not provide them something that works, what my research has shown is that if they have an unsatisfying experience, they are less likely to come back, but most importantly, they are less likely to ever disclose their distress again. So you get to this point where they've taken a risk on you. And this is something that the whole system needs to get better at. We need to start to go, all right, you've come in, you have this expectation that I'm just going to heal everything for you, that I'm going to be, I'm going to wave my magic wand and everything will be sweet. We need to tell guys that's not going to be the case so that we expectations set for them so that they know that if this isn't, the, the panacea right now in the next 40 minutes, you know, that it's okay. It's going to take time, but we don't set those expectations. They come in, they think everything's going to be fixed straight away. We don't talk about it. We keep it really, really structured in a, in a, in a way that we do for everybody. And they leave going, what was that about? Mm-hmm. I gave that one shot. It didn't work. And um, I'm never coming back. And then you end up obviously seeing down the line, um, the bottling up leading to to people harming themselves because they don't trust the system or others. And then even worse, they ha- then have the attitude of, oh, well, I've tried that, you know, I've tried everything, even if it's just you just went to one psychologist. And I, I think it's something like it might take five or six psychologists before you find one that's right for you. But if they've all got three-month waiting times, you know, that's probably unrealistic to, to expect that. And then there's people who are going through their lives after seeking out that help, not getting what they needed, and then forming the view of, oh, that doesn't work for me, or that's not for me, or when I tried that, that was just shit, so I'm not ever going to entertain it. And then they've closed down or, or maybe um, built even more of a, a connection in their mind of, okay, well, that can't help me. 
and uh, I, I don't seem to be able to help myself. Um, so it just reaffirms that, well, there must be something wrong with me and I'm alone and then ugh, like again. So exactly. it seems like such a critical point when men access services that they find what they need pretty much straight away or they at least have a path to go and find it somewhere else and they don't just slip through the net because the likelihood of getting them all the way back to that point is so much tougher. Exactly. And that's what I hear every day is that, uh, you know, when I get referrals coming in, they go, oh, my son has seen everyone under the sun. He never believes in this stuff. He doesn't think it's ever going to work, etc." And so I try and really shift it up. If he comes in and he sees me, my first question is, why do you think this is shit? Why do you not want to do this? Why do you think this won't work? And we just chat about that for 20 minutes. And the idea that I am willing to entertain his doubt is something that's really important. I then talk to him about what I can and cannot do. Um, you know, I don't white coat it. I make it really clear who I am, what I am capable of, and how I need him to buy into this because without his motivation, I'm nothing. Um, we just break down any stereotype that exists about a couch in therapy, about what is and is not, um, you know, actually going to happen here so that you demystify it so that he feels like an active partner, a collaborator in this, and so that it's transparent because then he buys into a process that he is fundamentally a part of. And men, um, men realising that yeah. they have to drive it themselves. And actually, that, that's what we want to do as well. We don't necessarily want someone to, to save us or, or fix us, but I think perhaps the attitude is, oh, I'll go in there and then they're meant to just figure me out or whatever, tell me some things and then that's fine. But actually it's like, as a psychologist, you are there to guide that person and try to make them think in a, a bit of a different way or make some things clear to them that perhaps they haven't thought about, but it comes down to that person actually driving it and feeling comfortable enough with whoever their clinician is to really open up and, and let themselves start to heal themselves over time. Perhaps men would actually prefer that because we want to have control. We want to feel like we're in charge of our own lives. Yeah, I'm a personal trainer. You know? <laughs> I'm just going to come, I'm going to show you some of the exercises and you're going to work out on your own. Yeah. And what it comes down to is that uh, I'm going to see you for an hour a week. You, if you think that that's enough exercise, no way. Go off and do some shit. Do, yeah. do the hard yards and come back and show me how strong you really are. So that reframe that you're doing, having young men in and talking to them in that way and making them see it differently, in your view, is that what needs to happen on mass? For sure. So that's that's what I do at Movember. I, I run a training program for mental health clinicians across the board, um, trying to upskill them in this stuff, which is uh, not to do away with everything that they've that they've trained in, but to just try to amplify some of the things. We're not necessarily purposeful in the way that we approach young guys. We're too passive. You know, it starts to go, oh, they don't really want to be here. And so we all, you know, revert back into our shells rather than actually go moving forward and trying out new and different things. So sort of challenging them a and, bit. Exactly. That's really the way that I think that this should be wholesaled out, which is to go, how are you communicating with them? How are you discussing their wants and their needs? How are you motivating them? What are you looking for when it comes to depression and suicidality? Because it looks really different in guys. And how can we find a way to get all clinicians across Australia on the same page to go, this is a really important movement when it comes to our next generation of men. Um, and we can actually find a space to hold them in while also pushing them, because that's fundamentally it. We're not there to just accept and validate everything that they do. I still push them. I still question them. But you provide the authentic, you know, vulnerable, trusting, honest space with them where 
three, four, five sessions down the line, that's when they're willing to, to share with you, to open up to you. You don't need to, to push it. You don't need to go, I need everything right now. This is an assessment. Talk to me about what happened in your childhood. It's like, wait it out, mate. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I love the language of it. So there's the upskilling element of it. Then I'm sure there's also just more clinicians, you know, bigger, bigger practices, more places for people to be able to go and hopefully get in sooner than three months or six months. Mm-hmm. And then another massive part of the picture has got to be the preventative health stuff before it even gets to that point, particularly in the schooling system and before we even get there at all, preventative health strategies at that time, these conversations at that time, interventions when boys are in their teenage years that hopefully has that trickle-down effect for the next few generations and then ongoing after that where hopefully there are less people all trying to access these services at a time, at a time when we have more of those services as well and that's when things start to shift. Huge. It's That's the stepped care model. We talk about like downstream and upstream um, and we want to get to the point where upstream, where this stuff is early, it's in its inception, it's just, you know, fleeting feelings of anxiety or or you get down every once in a while. That is not stuff that should be um, pathologized necessarily. They shouldn't be in to come and see me because I don't have time. They should be within a school system that is providing two lessons a week of, of resilience training stuff and coping strategies for study and all of those types of things. We need to sell it to these guys because it is just not anything that is of interest to them at the moment. How can you get mental health on their radar when it's not something that they have necessarily experienced just yet or suffered with? Um, We need to get preemptive with it and they need to see that this is in their best interest and it needs to be offered to them in a way that makes sense, which is you want good friendships, you want to meet a girl, you want to be better at, at sport, you know, you want to do better at school. You need to put aside the time to do this work. That's why we need this trickle-down effect of, of schools and employment. You know, they, they, their parents need to come home and be like, oh, we had a whole day today of, you know, meaningful well-being. This is what I learned. Mm. You know, this is what I did and and it, I'm valuing it rather than what happens at the moment at the dinner table, which is there was this bullshit, you know, four-day workshop and I paid no attention and look, I got some extra leave. And the mental health has to be, mental health has to be, synonymous with being an effective man not separate and we need to treat it on par with academic subjects or certainly have it be part of the curriculum ongoing where we're saying we're sending the message of this is just as important as all the Mm. practical skills because there's no use having all the practical skills in life if you have zero handle on the emotional aspect of things and then we all act surprised when down the line Although you've got it all together on paper, it's all falling apart underneath because we never paid any attention to that. So, of course, that happens. I can teach you all the maths in the world. You can know every equation. You can be ready as ever. And then you can come in and you can have a panic attack in the exam. And then it's all gone. It doesn't matter. None of that learning means anything if you do not have your head in the game. It's just like you can watch Nick Kyrgios. He's got the most skill in the world. But, you know, his mental health lets him down sometimes. And so if you can get on top of some of these things, um, your performance, you know, and your well-being can interact fundamentally. And that's what we need as human beings. And as school kids, for an example, how much time are they spending stressed out about whatever maths exam or uh, whatever subject it might be, a little bit compared to their friendship dynamic and how popular they are and whether this girl likes them or not and how their social media is going like how much of their attention is taken up by that probably 
80-90% yet that's not even something that adults really even talk about or focus on so we know it's just going on but it's, and we know it can be hugely destructive and it's also just a massive part of growing up but we kind of leave it to them <laughs> it's just like mm. we, hit, we hit 18 and we just forget that we were ever teenagers it's yeah. like you're an adult now and I'm, I'm going to forget everything that I went through, all of that trauma of, of growing up and going through through youth and adolescence. And now I'm just going to go, where's your performance? Why don't you know? Because we get we get pulled into this corporate lifestyle that exists within our society as well when we become adults. And then we look at kids, you know, who are struggling with serious identity formation stuff. And we discard that when that is the fundamentals of who they are going to become. And that's the social fabric that we want to be cultivating. What part does the government need to play in making that a reality when we're talking about these interventions and these programs? Well, I think like what the Victorian government has done, firstly, the Royal Commission, um, which was glaringly obvious and, you know, it was it was expected what came out, which is to say that the whole system is flawed and broken um, and is not serving the very people it is supposed to. Um, that's very frightening to read, um, as especially as um, parliamentarians. And so... I really respect um, all of the, the people who are a part of that because what came out of it is we need an overhaul. We need a, a revolution, not an evolution here. And so funding is essential. And what they you know, have proposed at least is a mental health levy. So they are going to increase taxes, um, which will hopefully be in the benefit of everybody um, for, for a year or two um, to get to the point where they have the funds to literally dismantle and rebuild um, because if you continue to put money, and this is the thing, this is what's happened for the past 10 years, lots of money has been put into mental health more than ever before. The demand is greater now, but also the complexity is greater and you are putting money into a system that is just not working. And so it's it's a well, it just goes nowhere. Um, if we can find a way to hold on to those systems in the meantime, while underneath building up something totally new and and improved that is person-led you know that is co-created with lived experience where we speak to people who have been struggling who have been through this system there's been way too much paternalistic uh i know everything ivory tower governments previously where they just go we're just going to make these decisions even though we actually aren't experts in the field there's a slow shift now towards Let's speak to experts and let's speak fundamentally to the lived experience to go, what happened and what can we do differently for you in future and not be afraid of how massive that task might be because the system that was built 20, 30, 40 years ago was not purposefully built. It was built out of necessity. And now we should be building something for future that is built purposefully and that is built in order to actually deal with the complexity that is in front of us. Well, and then recognises that we're living in a different world now and increasingly we will be and it's not going to go back to the way it was and we need to find an, a new system for, for a way forward. You're across a number of fields because you work as a clinical psychologist so then you're a researcher as well. So what part does academia play in all this and in your life versus the rest of it? And I guess where do you find all the time for it? <laughs> just my glasses i just put them yeah, on when i'm pretending yeah that's right I'm um, now. <laughs> it's uh it's so important and this is the best part of it. i couldn't do one or the other alone um i love how they interact because i do this thing where i uh, go off and i do some surveys and i do some research qualitative or otherwise um 
I work something out and I'm like, yep, yeah, this is sweet. I found, I found a, a solution of sorts. And then I go in and I sit with a 15 year old boy and I try it out and he goes, fuck you. And, um, <laughs> and you know, and I have these moments where I go the, the, the other day I was sitting with a client and he like, didn't speak for like 20 minutes. And I'm supposed to be the man whisperer, you know, I'm the guy who can engage anyone. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I said to him in a, in a moment of, uh, of vulnerability, I'm like, I'm supposed to be good at this. And he goes, obviously not. And, and, <laughs> and just to have, yeah, it was so good. Humbling, and, humbling. And that was literally, that was the beginning of the best session I've ever had with him because it was just me being like, what's going on here? This is really difficult. And it was me just saying, I'm at a loose end. And so what the research does is it provides me with lenses, literally, in order to be able to come into uh, clinical work um, with a broad sense of what's happening on the ground. But then I try, I dip my toe in, um, in one-on-one and you start to see how nothing can be applied everywhere. And you start to understand the complexity of this stuff. And so they, they reciprocally um, feed into one another and drive me because I, I have a question from my clinical work and then I can just go and ask it to 2000 people, you know, and, and start to see um, and, and just allow those passionate juices, I guess, to, to um, grow and, and, um, the best part really is that I get to do advocacy as well. So um, trying to shift policy stuff, trying to to advocate on behalf of men for a better system as I've tried to do to, with you today as well. Um, they all feed into each other and being able to write as well as, as widely as I possibly can just to get this stuff out there and make clear to people. I don't want anyone um, to not know, you know, by, by the end of next year, that we lose six to seven men a day to suicide in Australia. This should not be a surprise to anyone anymore. It is time to act and do things differently. But you've got a very rare insight having your toe in all three of those different fields, or a lot more than your toe, let's be honest. But <laughs> all three of those together because it shows you more than anyone how much all of that is necessary to this picture and that you've got to have the science and the research, but it doesn't mean much if you can't connect it to the consumer and then even that doesn't mean that much if you don't have advocacy and groups working for the rights and the betterment of those who need it. And all three of those things need to be connected deeply for us to actually move forward. And then the consumer themselves has to be aware, has to be open to it and has to feel like they're a part of something that's not just being thrown at them, but they're being brought into it and nurtured through it the thing that i'm so lucky about is that it's such a young field everything is new and everything is groundbreaking in many yeah. instances the fact that no one has asked guys what happens in therapy until i did a paper like in 2017 or 18 that was like the first time anyone's gone what's happening behind this door like that I'm, it's ripe for intervention. I can literally do anything and it will be new and innovative. And, and you're so a I think that I'm a genius. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, just making my way. And so, you know, the real thing to, for everyone, you know, who works in this space, yourself included, is to make sure that we look after ourselves because um, we want to do everything. We want to change the world. I want to dip yeah. my toe in every field possible. Um, but we need to um, make sure that we not only talk the talk, but walk the walk as well. And it's, it's naturally within my, you know, masculinity to, to be competitive and to drive and push myself. Um, but I need to make sure that I drink the Kool-Aid while I'm at it. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask next. You have to practice what you preach. And when so much of your, of your life is spent on such an emotionally 
charged mission, how do you protect yourself so that you have that longevity? Mm. I'm a ritualistic robot, um, to be honest with <laughs> it you. Looks like um, it, yeah. which, which which really really helps. Um, I so I've got lots of lots of rituals that are fundamental to like my well being. Um, I try to not to rigidly apply them, but I meditate um, twice a day. I swim in the ocean every day um, as best I can. Um, I run as much as I can as well. I eat healthy, um, and I've got really really robust and meaningful friendships and i think that what what something that november strives to push and something that is now becoming increasingly clear to me um because of research and my clinical work is that social isolation and disconnection is and loneliness you know all synonyms of one another in some ways is the greatest killer of men um that is what happens over time is that guys go from their teenage years into young adulthood into middle age and they just drop friends like flies and that's not because they don't care it's because they don't prioritize it in the same way that women do for instance and you end up with you know a longitudinal harvard study that's following up people you know guys that they picked up in the 30s and is now looking at them now and um the only ones who are still alive regardless of if they smoked if they drunk you know if they're in the vietnam war are the ones who have mates are the ones who still have people to connect with talk to share with um, embrace, you know, that is what is going to keep us alive as, as men. And so, um, that's what keeps me going as well is, um, being relentless with my friends and making sure that I, um, check in with them and do dumb things like 10 pin bowl, even though it's definitely not for people of my age or generation. Yeah, man, I relate to that so much. I get such a huge amount out of my friendships, which I'm so grateful for. And they're, so genuine and it brings an immense amount of uh i guess pride and just what it means to be human to hang around real friends and be able to check in on them and have them do the same and then just talk shit sometimes and be dumb and act like a kid and it doesn't matter and thinking like wow so many men don't have this they don't have this and this is so immensely powerful for me and i'm so grateful for it and then i guess also through having these kinds of conversations and trying to reframe the narrative trying to encourage men to be that person in their friendship group that they you know be that guy who wants to bring this stuff up not necessarily to focus on it but that the other people that you are friends with know that they can go to you and they can be honest and they can talk about it uh, if they need to and that just that alone if there's one of those in every friendship group and that becomes a change then that can make a, a massive difference in terms of that ripple effect so it's been great even in my friendship group to meet new friends or same friends and and be that person who has those discussions and then see them all turn into that person as well and it's like yeah that's so cool and i know there's other examples of that in other groups and this is going to be millions of tiny little changes over time it's not just like one big thing and okay now we've solved mental health and it's not a problem anymore um it's, it's going to be someone from every friendship group, someone from every family starting to think differently, talk differently and bringing everyone else along with them while the government does it, while advocacy groups do it, while educators do it. That's, that's how it's going to happen. Um, and I think everyone has the power to, to be that person or be part of it, no matter what your situation is. So my last question for you is, why should we be optimistic about the future? Is it's coming for us. <laughs> Things are changing and they are changing for the better and they are changing regardless of whether or not you're coming or not. So I think you should get on board because what we're starting to realise is that there is a new world order ahead and it is so much brighter for everybody. 
when we start to release ourselves from the shackles and, you know, take the burden off our shoulders and share it amongst one another, our society will be so much better off. Um, and it just takes, as you said, just that glimpse into a new era um, for, for men to start to go, oh, wow, that that is something that I can get around. And so being that person, um, it's imperative that you find your voice um, one way or another in a in a certain time where you just step up to the plate and you go, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before and I'm going to share something that's happening in my life right now, for instance. And to just watch the circuit breaking that happens um, is so beautiful to watch. And so I have so much hope for, for men. I have so much hope for humanity. As Steven Pinker always says, things are only getting better. You know, while it might seem that we're down in the dumps every once in a while, the past two years have been pretty shit for, for many people. I believe strongly in post-traumatic growth and that out of pain and suffering comes success and growth. And so I really hope that people just realize their potential to do things differently and to realize what is working, what is not, and how can I shift this up? Because um, that is how we are going to move towards self-betterment and a society that looks after themselves and, and each other. And to appreciate that what isn't working, we don't have to be trapped by. We can let it go and we can take the good stuff from the old, take it with us and build a new arc. Amen to that, Noah. <laughs> it's cool, man, because obviously your profile, you have a certain amount of prestige around you and you're, you're a notable character in all this and an academic and everything. But I also, I just feel like I'm just talking to a, to a dude as well. That's my aim, man. Which is, I'm just a dude. Yeah, I'm I know. Just a dude. But that, that's how it has to be because that's that relatability and you have that in spades and you need to be able to have both sides of it where you know what you're talking about but you can actually disarm people and, and relate and, and be a human being mm. yourself and the beauty of I think why you're so passionate about this and why you've come so far is because like, you truly feel it you're experiencing it still you're still a young man living his life trying to work it all out you've been through the pain that you have you don't want to feel certain ways again and you want other people to be liberated and um, that's that's how I feel as well and yeah Beautiful. I rate it bro <laughs> it is thanks man I really appreciate it this has been, this has been awesome that's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Young Blood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Young Blood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Young Blood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. You can sign up to our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.